All right, welcome back to the QTR podcast. How the hell is everybody? How's it going? It is weekend morning edition. Let's all wake up together and hold hands and drink coffee. The whiskey will come out in T minus four minutes. All right, happy to have you guys here. First and foremost, as soon as I can find the damn thing, I'll tell you about the sponsors because they keep me in business. So if you like me, you got to like them too. That's the way it goes. First and foremost, listen. The market has been uncertain this year and volatile, and as a result, there's been a lot of investment into alternatives, some by the biggest players in finance, like Goldman Sachs and BlackRock. Ever heard of them? They say the days of there is no alternative are over, T-I-N-A. RIA reports 88% of surveyed advisors intend to increase allocations to alternatives over the next two years, with over half raising allocations all the way to 15%. Institutions are already maxed out at 30 to 50% into alternative investments. What are they looking into? Goldman specifically names fine art among the ways to help protect your purchasing power. In 2022, the big three auction houses posted record high revenues of a combined 17.7 billion, the best auction year ever. The global art market is still exceeding its pre-pandemic level, according to the 2023 UBS Art Market Report. And how can we take advantage? Us, the peons. (laughs) Tens of thousands of everyday investors already use today's sponsor, Masterworks, where you can invest without needing millions or an art degree. I have invested with Masterworks in the past. It is easy to use. It's really been the only way somebody like myself, a chump like myself, could get access to priceless works of art. Obviously, I don't have the money to be going out and buying friggin' Picassos and Banksy's on my own. Uh, Every painting Masterworks has sold to date has delivered positive return to their investors, including net annualized returns of 10, 17, and even 35% all this year. Naturally, as I always say on this show, past performance is not a guarantee of future returns, and any investing involves risk, including loss of principal. However, Masterworks' 15th exit was just a couple of days ago for an annualized net return of 77.3%, and now you can skip the line. Normally, you would have to request an invitation But you can skip the line, skip the waiting list by using my code, which is QTR at masterworks.com. So if you go to masterworks.com, promo code QTR, skip the line, make sure you see important regulation A disclosures at masterworks.com slash CD. Some light reading for you. This podcast also brought to you by my friends at JM Bullion, the only place I buy my gold and silver bullion. JM Bullion has been in business for nearly a decade. They've done over $7 billion in sales, and they're the only place I will order my gold and silver bullion online. End of story, full stop. QTR podcast listeners have their own rep and their own point of contact at JM Bullion. The lovely Laura, L-A-U-R-A at jmbullion.com. You can send her an email or reach out to her if you have any questions or if you don't feel like browsing the website. She would be more than happy to help you. What I can tell you about JM Bullion, they always have great inventory. They have reasonable premiums to spot, which means the prices aren't out of control. They turn around my orders quickly. They ship discreetly. They've done the best job out of all of the bullion places that I have ordered from. There's only a few. I mean, I've only ordered from a couple of different places. But in terms of getting my order quickly and discreetly, uh, I've been very happy with JM Bullion, which is why I'm happy that they support the podcast because I am happy to honestly say good things about them at the beginning of every podcast instead of just reading something because they're paying me. That's not how it's going down. I actually like JM Bullion. I like to vet 
my sponsors, and I'm happy that they are here with me still. Shout Laura, L-A-U-R-A, at jmbullion.com if you have any questions or just want to say hello. Visit the company at jmbullion.com. Link is in the podcast description. This podcast also brought to you by my friends over at Rebel Capitalist Pro, where George Gammon has teamed up with Lynn Alden, Chris McIntosh, Brent Johnson, and a bunch of other people that are much, much smarter than I am to help you preserve your wealth in a world of -of out-of-control central banks. Everybody that listens to my podcast knows that we don't always get the story as it goes down from the mainstream media, definitely not the mainstream financial media. If you are curious as to how the entire central bank Ponzi scheme is working globally, nobody lays it out better than George Gammon. His whiteboard videos are an incredible resource. He's got two great YouTube channels, George Gammon and Rebel Capitalist, that you can follow for free. But I recommend Rebel Capitalist Pro because it gives you access to George's forums, all their mock portfolios, all the premium content. You know, people like Lynn Alden and Brent Johnson, their premium content isn't found elsewhere. And if you do, you got to find it separately. Rebel Capitalist Pro loops everybody together. So you get their content as part of a package and you get a wonderful community to discuss things with as well. Uh, George also does live Q&As often for his members, a place where you can ask questions and just chew the fat as it comes to, uh, well, the decline of Western society, we'll just say. Check out Rebel Capitalist Pro. That link is in my podcast description. And finally, my dear friends over at the Sang Lucci Wall Street Jesus Steam Room, if you are an active trader, this is the community that you need to be a part of. The Steam Room is brought to you by Wall Street Jesus, who was one of the original gangsters of watching unusual options activity in markets before that became a thing. Lucci and Wall Street Jesus were doing it before everybody. They were pioneers, really. They launched the Steam Room, I think, more than 10 years ago when nobody was looking at unusual options activity. So these guys are still the tip of the spear as it comes to identifying moves in the options market that could telegraph moves in the equities market. Nobody, I would trust nobody with tape reading better than these guys to look at stocks, to look at the market objectively without emotion and to try to telegraph where the moves are going to be going forward. I love the Steam Room. It's a beautiful piece of software. It's a wonderful community if you're an active trader to be a part of. Sang Lucci and Wall Street Jesus are wonderful people, good guys to do business with, people that I support, uh, just like George Gammon, just like JM Bullion, just like Masterworks Services. I've used people I know, uh, honest people to do business with that I'm happy to recommend to my listeners. All their contacts are in my podcast description. And if you're interested, shout them out and tell them I sent you and tell them you want a free trial or whatever the hell it is that you want. And they will work with you. If they know you came from my podcast, they will work for you. Uh, work with you. They will work for you too. Tell Sang Lucci, make me dinner. <laughs> make me an omelet, damn it. All right. Anyways, <clears throat> very stoked about the podcast we have coming to you today to speak to Dr. Peter McCullough for the second time I am uh, I'm really thankful that he's decided to come on and give us an update as to the insane world of COVID and lockdowns. All right, I am honored to have with me Dr. Peter McCullough. He is an internist, cardiologist, epidemiologist, holding degrees from Baylor University, University of Texas Southwestern Medical School, University of Michigan, and Southern Methodist University. I will put his full bio in the podcast description, most of you know him already. He's the author of Courage to Face COVID-19 and has been on the show before. How are you, Dr. McCullough? Good. Thanks for having me. I'm so happy that you're here uh, again because so much has so much has changed 
Uh, and I'm sure there's more that you can inform me of than than I know because I'm kind of at a 30,000-foot level. There's so much has changed over the last year since last we've talked, but I think I want to get right into it with you. Uh, I Actually, the first question I want to ask you is I, I know that you were uh, fighting the powers that be in terms of uh, the medical board the last time I spoke to you, and I just want to know how that went. Right, is, that a, is that something you're still in the midst of fighting, or was that adjudicated? Or No, the, the Texas Medical Board's never had any... Um complaints registered or brought any issues forward for me. So I'm fine with the Texas Medical Board. The American Board of Internal Medicine uh, is having me go through an appeal process on an allegation about their COVID uh, information policy, uh, of which I'm disputing. I think the American Board of Internal Medicine has made many erroneous statements and they've continued to do so. So um, we're negotiating through attorneys on having an appeal hearing. So in progress would be a good way to describe that. Yeah. Okay. Well, we'll wish you the best on that, and we're sure that the uh, we're sure that the truth will will uh, will win the day. Hopefully. Um, so we're heading into the fall now, and I wanted to get your take on what appears to be a new wave of coming lockdowns and mask mandates. I mean, I could be mistaken, but the the general pulse on things right now is that is that we're gearing up for, I don't know, potentially more lockdowns or mask mandates. And uh, I wanted to see what was new in that regard and also get your take on what's new with uh, with some of the new variants since the last we've we've talked. And is that are those things that people should be alarmed about? We are seeing a rise of COVID cases when it's tested, but it's it's indistinguishable from the common cold. It's called ERIS or EG5. Uh, it's very mild. Uh, there's no fever, no pulmonary involvement. We use nasal sprays and gargles to take care of it and some over-the-counter supplements. I haven't had to prescribe any drugs. No hospitalizations or deaths, so it's very mild. No need to return to masking lockdown, social distancing, and the new vaccines won't be covering this version anyway. The vaccines have already outdated. The new vaccine is coded against XBB 1.5, and that's essentially gone now. So I think people don't need to worry. Just go on with life as usual. Most of my patients tell me, listen, Dr. McCall, I don't want to be bothered with any of this stuff anymore, and they don't need to be. Yeah, and it's one thing for me to say that because I'm wholly unqualified, and it's a it's a different thing for you to say that. Um, and I know obviously you're not you're not painting with a broad brush for everybody, but I mean, how do you explain how do you explain this kind of incessant uh, I don't I don't even know what you want to call it addiction to to panic over COVID? I mean, do you think that it's legitimately people don't understand the science, or do you think it's you think there's other nefarious things at play? Well, people call it um, fear porn. That it's, it's like, in a sense, pornography of fear that, um, you know, our government officials, public health officials, doctors, healthcare systems, they be- become drunk on power and they seem to derive power by promoting fear. And I do the opposite of my practice. I promote confidence, resilience. We're able to get people through it early. I've published the McCullough Protocol to treat COVID originally. Most widely utilized protocol in the world saved probably millions and millions of lives, spared hundreds of millions of hospitalizations. And now I've published the first detoxification protocol to help people get out of the side effects of the vaccines. So I'm I'm producing solutions and publishing them in the peer-reviewed literature. Meanwhile, 
what we call the biopharmaceutical complex that I published in my book. The biopharmaceutical complex seems to promote fear as a means of continued mass vaccination, which is generating record profits for those involved in vaccines. I remember after the first vaccine started to roll off the line, which was supposed to be a point of confidence for everybody, right? I mean, there was this great sigh of relief a year or two ago when when the vaccine started to uh, be widely distributed. And I remember that day, Rachel Walensky, who was the CDC director, going on television and saying that all of a sudden she had an impending feeling of doom. Those were her exact words. And I was trying to square the two. I was trying to think, why would she be saying that now? At You know, look, if you're if you're an advocate for the vaccines, ostensibly, this should be this should be the best point so far. But why why go out and say that then? And that kind of that seems to kind of gel with what you're saying, doesn't it? This was a, an infection that had way less than a one percent case fatality rate. It was a risk for largely people in nursing homes or seniors people with medical problems, and it was easily treatable. We should have been promoting confidence and resilience and not knocking down the public with messages of fear. It was terrible leadership, terrible public health policy. One question that I wanted to see if you could help explain, I've been watching uh, Brett Weinstein, I don't know if you're familiar with him, talk about the messenger RNA that comes with the boosters and with the mRNA vaccines. And and you'll have to forgive the crudity of my question because I don't really understand the science too well. Um, But what he was trying to differentiate was between people blaming the spike protein for negative effects versus the actual uh, delivery method. And, And one of the things he was talking about on his most recent podcast was, or one of his most recent podcasts was um, this idea that the mRNA kind of winds up in parts of your body that it's not supposed to and that triggers some type of autoimmune response from the body i'm just wondering are are you familiar with those claims and if so can you explain that to a lay person like myself no for sure it does i mean i can tell you this is very very important the vaccines are genetic code for the lethal spike protein So we would never want the genetic code for a lethal protein installed in our body because we can't control what the genetic code is going to do, how much of the lethal protein is going to be produced. And some people, it produces too much lethal protein and they die. But the CDC has recorded 17,800 deaths. Uh, That's what they for sure know about. There's been 1,100 of those deaths that occur right in the vaccine center. So what you're saying saying in essence is the, the, the vaccine can't control how much of the lethal protein the body produces after it's being told to produce it. Is that right? That's right. And it starts producing it within the first hour. That's the reason why people get so sick. You know, in the CDC vSafe data, 7.7% of people get so sick, they start vomiting, having allergic reactions, trouble breathing, uh, fever. They actually have to go to ER, be hospitalized, 7.7%. I mean, these are very, very dangerous shots acutely. I would never want to take a 7.7% chance of being knocked out with a shot where I can't even go to work. Uh, And in fact, that's what happened. But what we know on this is that once the genetic code is installed, we can't get it out of the body. And then because the spike protein is very abnormal, 
we start to generate antibodies against a whole variety of proteins. And this is on uh, today's Substack, my Courageous Discourse Substack, a paper by Semler and colleagues, University of Dusseldorf, showed that chronic fatigue and all the problems after the vaccine is due to all these antibodies, that these autoimmune antibodies directed against a whole variety of cardiovascular and other receptors. Paper by uh, Paninges Polygridis from Italy has shown that every single cell that takes up the genetic material, uh, the body launches an attack against that cell because it recognizes the cell as foreign as it's expressing the Wuhan spike protein on its surface. So I guess my question is, I have two follow-up questions. The first is, when will there be, I don't even know what it'll take. Will it be, will we need more robust studies like you're talking about? Will we need more volume of studies? What What will it take for this to break through what you're saying right now and, you know, what uh, Brett was talking about on his podcast? What's it going to take for that to break through? I don't know. To, to does, does it break through to the public first and then back its way? into the, you know, the CDC and the powers that be, or do they realize it first some point down the line and then start to warn the public? What what, what the hell is it going to take? I can sense the frustration in your question. You know, a end of June, early July, Kaiser Family Foundation survey, and the, the Kaiser Foundation is a very pro-vaccine organization. They did a survey, and they were shocked to learn that a third of Americans think the COVID vaccines are causing tens of thousands of people to die. A third of the country thinks that. So I can tell you, people are clearly awake on this. Now, two thirds didn't answer so strongly, but a third of people talking to other people is huge. The COVID Community States Program, the Harvard and Northeastern did a big survey, 25,000 sample size. A quarter of Americans didn't take these shots, myself included. I would never take oh, I lose you I never recommended them to my patients. You were just yeah, saying so, that so you've, no. ne so you've the, never the taken them and you've never recommended them to your patients? Is that what you said? That's right. I've never taken them. I told my family not to take them. Uh, no, there's a large proportion of people not taking the shots. Now, when will we get to 100% of Americans? What we know is that uh, by a Zogby survey last summer, 15% of people get the shots have new medical problems. Right. Megan Kelly just came out yesterday and said she's got an autoimmune problem from the vaccine. I saw that. It, you know, Eric Clapton said he, you know, he developed a neuropathy from the vaccine. Al Roker had blood clots. Uh, uh, Kirk Herbstreet, uh, blood clots. And it just keeps going and going and going. So, you know, I can tell you firsthand that I think a large uh, proportion of Americans know the vaccines aren't safe. And, you know, 15% or fewer of the country is even taking any boosters. The rate of booster use is very low. Um, you know, we have now Jill Biden, the first lady, uh, she's purportedly taken all the shots. That means she's had seven or eight shots now. She's got COVID. So it's obvious it doesn't work. The shots don't work at all. <clears throat> and one of the rebuttal points that I constantly grapple with that I was hoping you could shed light on, which I actually think if it's not if it's not hashed out properly, could kind of uh, make some sense is people that are very quick to blame the vaccines anytime they see somebody, you know, collapse in public or they see uh, anything. People that are quick to always point their finger at the vaccine. How do we differentiate which 
which of these negative effects are coming from the vaccine versus which may be coming from a lingering, you know, bout of COVID that happened in the past or a current asymptomatic case of COVID that's not showing up on a PCR test? How do, how do we differentiate one from the other? Well, we can look in 2020 where there was no vaccine and we had severe COVID. And 2020, you know, we understand a lot of things. Let's take myocarditis or heart inflammation. In 2020, before the vaccines, the Big Ten Athletic League Look for myocarditis. They screened tens of thousands of athletes. They found a handful of potential cases of myocarditis, no hospitalizations or deaths. The U.S. military, the same program, they didn't find anything, they dropped it. The Israeli military didn't find anything, they dropped it. Paper from Israel by two Valiant colleagues didn't find any extra myocarditis cases with COVID more than the baseline values due to parvovirus or flu or anything else. So we know before the vaccines, Myocarditis was very rare and inconsequential. Now we roll in the vaccines. Our FDA by June of 2021 says the vaccines cause myocarditis. And then we now have 800 papers in a peer-reviewed literature, devastating. Uh, two papers, one by Mansugian, the other one by Buren. The rate of heart damage in people who take the vaccines, 2.5%. That's very common. And we have fatal cases proven by autopsy, paper by Holscher and colleagues. I'm the senior author showing proven fatal vaccine-induced myocarditis. So I can tell you it's clear the vaccines are the problem, not COVID. And so the baseline in 2020 that you're talking about when they first started to, in essence, you want to call that whatever, our control uh, for trying to figure out whether vaccines are at fault, that data set in 2020 was robust enough and COVID had made its way around enough for that to be considered whatever, statistically significant as a control? Like there, there was enough data there for us to be able to compare that with what we have uh, post-vaccine? Is that, is that what you're saying? That's correct. All right. Well, that's, uh, that's alarming. And uh, I'd like to say that I'm surprised, but unfortunately I'm not. Uh, I have a couple more questions for you. The first is I was wondering if you saw the FDA's cavalier admission in court a couple of weeks ago that, oh, hey, it's always been okay for your prescribing doctor to prescribe ivermectin. And I'm, I was interested in your take on that, if you had seen it, first off, and, and what your take is on that versus what the agency's forward-facing attitude toward ivermectin, and not just ivermectin, I mean, although I think that was the most egregious offender, and the other uh, potential ways of treating COVID early on, the monoclonal antibodies and uh, vitamin D, hydroxychloroquine. Uh, did you see that pivot? Yeah, well, yeah, I think it was a capitulation. Uh, remember the FDA in 2021 said, they have tweeted out, they said ivermectin is only a horse paste yeah. not to use it in COVID. It said not to use it in COVID. The American Medical Association, based on that, launched a, a campaign to abolish the use of ivermectin. What happened is over 50 clinical trials were done. Ivermectin was always safe, always effective, in aggregate, about a 50% reduction in mortality. Now, we had one of the best studies done called the ICON study, published in Chess by Roster, um, showing a 50% reduction in mortality. That was presented in the U.S. Senate in December uh, 8th of 2020. I mean, it was clear and compelling that ivermectin was safe and effective, and the FDA was intentionally misleading the country, and doctors Bowden, Merrick, and Apter brought a case in federal court, 
And in federal court, the lawyer for the FDA said uh, that indeed the FDA never said we couldn't use ivermectin to treat COVID. They just basically caved on that. A giant, giant embarrassment and indictment of the FDA misleading the country, leading to harm. Doctors were correct in using ivermectin. It was always part of the McCullough Protocol since the end of 2020, safe and effective. Now, we don't rely on ivermectin alone, and other drugs work as well, but ivermectin was a very helpful part of the multi-drug protocol. It saved lives. The FDA's action actually cost American lives. And the... The stunning thing about it is once you wrap your head around it, the sad thing is I don't think much of the population has really wrapped their head around what the history of ivermectin is. And obviously, I'm not a biologist, I'm not a doctor, I'm not a chemist, but I've done enough reading to understand that it is essentially, in terms of safety and ubiquitousness of use, it's like on a par with amoxicillin. I mean, it's just, it's one of the... The, the greatest discoveries in, in human medicine that we've had in years. And in terms of safety, you know, its safety is nearly unparalleled. The safety has never been in question, which is why it really is that nefarious, not just for the FDA to say, hey, it has it may have limited efficacy in covid. All right. You want to argue that point? That's one thing. But to come out and present it only as veterinary medicine when there is there's would you say there's a zero percent chance that the fda knows that there's also a human form of this medicine as well like what do you put the odds of that at i think it was intentional it was intentional to mislead the country and, and it caused harm well why would anybody care if we used a safe drug if it could help people every single person sick with COVID, particularly those hospitalized, they should have gotten ivermectin. Yet hospitals intentionally denied it. Pharmacies wouldn't fill the prescriptions and patients died. Yeah, that was the other stunning thing. One of my listeners sent me a video the other day. Uh, you know, Army veteran or military veteran, 25-year veteran, uh, lives in Arizona, was prescribed ivermectin by his doctor in the midst of COVID, went to a Walgreens respectfully and quietly and calmly asked for them to fill the prescription and they started asking him all these questions well what is it for and he's like I don't have to tell you what it's for my doctor has given me the prescription and here it is that you know that's none of your business ultimately just like you said they wouldn't fill the prescription for him which is again we're not talking about a controlled substance here right we're not talking about Xanax we're not talking about opiates we're talking about one of the safest medicines known to man that's been dosed. I mean, how many times has it been dosed overall? I've been dosed billions and billions of times. It actually won the Nobel Prize in 2015 because it's a cure for river blindness. And the fact that we found it had antiviral properties was wonderful. I mean, ivermectin should be celebrated as a modern worldwide victory against disease. Instead, our FDA intentionally misled Americans and sadly, many died. Do you think there will be accountability? No. Uh, you know, I can tell you they. I, I don't think there's going to be any accountability at all right now. Um, we appear to be in a, in a time of lawlessness, a lack of uh, justice. People need to take measures in their own hands. I think everybody, honestly, should just be ready to treat themselves. They can't have our government, pharmacies, and others deny them treatment. We cannot go through another round of death. It's, it's absolutely unconscionable. 
Yeah, it is. It, and it's and it would just, you know, I can't imagine if I had a loved one that was battling with COVID and it was severe and I was just being denied access, you know, on those grounds too, on, on the worst possible, most nefarious, just completely false grounds. I would be devastated and I would be even more furious uh, than I already am. Uh, I have one more question for you, Dr. McCall. I appreciate your time. I know that you're on a schedule this morning. Mm -hmm. Uh, I wanted to get your thoughts about, this isn't just currently, but this is something that we didn't really talk about the last time that we talked about. Um, And that was the forcing of the vaccines and the masking onto children. Now, I remember seeing a study early on very early on, maybe in 2021, and I and I'm, I think it was actually CDC data that showed that the rate of death for COVID for people under the age of 18 was disproportionately actually not only lower than every other age group, but lower than that of the flu uh, for people. So first off, if you can tell me whether or not I'm correct in that, and second off, um, what do you make of the incessant kind of urging to have these children uh, abide by the same protocols as though that data somehow isn't out there and doesn't exist. Yeah, children are fine. They don't have threats from influenza, uh, COVID, respiratory syncytial virus, which is a childhood illness. Uh, almost all the cases are under age one. It's easily treated with nebulizers. And the only hospitalizations occur when people you know, fail to get enough uh, nebulized treatment as an outpatient. None of these conditions need vaccines, and the vaccines aren't really effective against respiratory conditions. Not enough to make them compelling. Pfizer's tried to vaccinate third trimester women for RSV, to vaccinate the babies passively. Uh, the FDA's approved an RSV vaccine for adults. Adults don't really get that illness. Uh, I think we've had basically a vaccine ideology set in where for every problem, there's a proposed vaccine. Uh, Moderna has 40 messenger RNA vaccines in development. Uh, the human body simply doesn't need these vaccines. We just need you know, reasonable, safe treatments if people get sick, and rarely they do. Th- you know, f- four studies now, Hooker, Miller, um, Thomas, and now an older Amish study, show that if people take no vaccines their entire life, they're healthier than everybody else who takes all these shots. So you're saying Moderna has 40 vaccines in the pipeline. And it, am I correct in saying that they're all based on the mRNA platform that we were just talking about has been called into question for creating these autoimmunities? That's not that's not uh, that's not just for covid. Right. I mean, that's the delivery system. It's not the actual uh, it's not the actual disease itself. Right. The bottom line is all these messenger RNA vaccines install foreign proteins and you can't control the the genetic mechanism. So, for instance, the Moderna flu shot, the messenger RNA, it's going to install the genetic code for the hemagglutinase, which is the spike protein of flu. So it's going to take a relatively benign shot and make it potentially lethal. It's a disaster. Messenger RNA is a disaster. I have a call for a complete moratorium on an all-messenger RNA in humans. I think it's really turned out to be just a horrible uh, idea. 
I published this before they came out, and boy, was I right. Finally, my, thank you so much for that. I appreciate you clearing that up. It sounds like a great reason to short Moderna stock, if you ask me. But um, but then again, we have no idea when the hell that's going to sink in with the powers that be. It'll probably take, you know, 30 years and many more deaths, unfortunately, before we even come around to that point. Uh, my very last question is uh, I wanted to kind of zoom out a little bit, see if you had heard any of the uh, arguments that presidential candidate um, Robert Kennedy has made uh, about vaccination in general, specifically with um, there not being long-term safety studies on many of the vaccines that are part of the uh, of the battery of vaccines that you know everybody gets throughout the course of their life, and I just wanted to see if you had any concluding thoughts about that. Is do you agree with him? Do you disagree with him? Does he make any good points? Are there any points that you would push back against? Well, yeah, I just my advice for Kennedy, if I could give advice, is. We don't need a presidential candidate trying to litigate the details of vaccines. You know, he needs to be working on foreign policy, uh, domestic policy, the economy, education, uh, you know, homeland security. Uh, you know, we need a presidential candidate that's acting presidential. We don't need a litigator trying to litigate vaccine details. What we need, though, is we need a thorough evidence-based review of the current vaccine schedule figure out which ones are obsolete, start to streamline things, make it more risk stratified. Vaccines potentially could help somebody who's at very high risk. But for the majority of people, the vaccines offer insignificant benefit and then occasionally they cause harm. And so we're really worried about harm with uh, the ever increasing vaccine schedule. It keeps amplifying every year. Every year the kids get more needles. Sooner or later, one of these kids is going to be harmed. And what do you say to people that fire back and just say, well, you know, that that's how we eradicated polio, Dr. McCullough? I don't think there's any significant evidence that any of the vaccines eradicated disease. So polio was basically on its way out long before the vaccines ever uh, came on the, the scene. Same thing for diphtheria and pertussis. Um, you know, I think the only vaccine where you could make the case where it potentially influenced things was the rubella vaccine. But we ought to look through them one by one. I mean, pertussis, uh, diphtheria, they're not significant conditions right now because we have better living conditions, a better air quality. And, and they're treated with a, a Z-Pak, zithromycin. I mean, why would we ever take a shot for that? We have much better wound care. We don't have people dying of tetanus out there, so we don't need tetanus shots. Uh, hepatitis B is only a threat for IV drug abusing people, those with active hep B. We don't have to vaccinate every normal baby with hepatitis B. They don't have any significant threat of hepatitis B. You know, we can actually go through this and weed out the vast majority of vaccines. They're, they're simply unnecessary and they potentially, you know, pose harm. Uh, Dr. McCullough, I just want to say thank you very much for giving me a little bit of your time this morning. I'm really happy that we got a chance to speak again and I, I want to thank you on my own uh, behalf but also on behalf of my listeners uh, for being uh, outspoken having the courage to speak out being such a fine patriot and uh, offering up your time we we all really appreciate you okay thank you very much all right take care that was dr. Peter McCullough one of my absolute favorites when it comes to figuring out the story behind the story when it comes to COVID. It's a short one today, but I'm going on his time schedule. I could have talked to him for three hours, uh, but you'll have to forgive the short nature of the podcast today. 
However, I've, uh, I've put out quite a bit of content lately, so I'm pat myself on the back here for this one, give myself a pass. You know, spend 35 minutes out of the hour I normally would on the podcast, and I'll go take the other 25 minutes and uh, crack open a Miller Lite. All right, fools. Thanks so much for tuning in. I will be back soon. Peace.